Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 309. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lendit FinTech. Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about a brand new event from Lendit FinTech. FinTech Nexus, the Dealmakers Summit will be the first major in-person fintech event of the past 18 months. A hand-curated audience of venture capitalists, bankers, fintechs, and debt investors will be meeting face-to-face at an event 100% focused on doing deals. It will be happening in Miami on September 1st and 2nd. You can apply to join and find out more at landit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Asaf Wand, he is the CEO and co-founder of Hippo. Now, Hippo are an insurtech. They're focused on home insurance. They've been around a few years. where They're already at a decent scale, which we talk about. What really struck me with Hippo and what's fascinating about this story is their approach to the customer relationship. And really, not just that, it's the, it's the approach to their product, which is turn the traditional model on its head and have really reimagined what's possible for a home insurance product and really focusing on having a, a better customer experience, but not just one that is incrementally better. It's one that's, that's fundamentally different. And we talk about how they do that. We talk about sort of the proactive steps they take to not just you know, help their customers you know, with their claims, but actually help their customers avoid a claim. Now, we talk a little bit about uh, technology. We talk uh, about what makes the home insurance such an uh, important space for them. And he ends with talking about um, you know, drama and romantic comedy. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Asaf. Thanks for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background. I'd, I'd like to sort of focus on, on what you did before Hippo. You've, you've uh, had a few interesting roles, it looks like. So give us some of the highlights there. That's going to take a while. So uh, get your <laughs> coffee, sit down, and start uh, going through it. Okay. Uh, what can I say? Israeli. Uh, and like every Israeli, I served in the military. I was a captain uh, in the Air Force for like five years. Then started studying law and finance, but because I was 23 when I started my studying and I went to my parents and said, listen, I'm going to, you know, I want to live in Tel Aviv. And they're saying, fine, awesome. So live in Tel Aviv. And I said, yes, but I need a bit of help with money. I'm like, and they're like, you're 23 year old. What do you want from our life? And uh, so I started basically having a part-time job working as a trader in an Israeli investment bank, trading at night and studying in the day, left that to start uh, basically an employee stock option kind of e-trade for lack of a better word. Ran it for a while, then joined Intel Capital in Israel as a, basically an associate on the uh, strategic investment arm of Intel. Did VC work for three years. Decided I needed a break. Went to, uh, to do my MBA in the US. Then worked with McKinsey in New York post-graduation uh, in the financial institution group. So a lot of insurance companies, asset managers, banks, all of these lovely beasts. Post that, went back to Israel, started a telecom company, which basically built two companies. One of them built multi-tenant tower business in India. So cell towers that we actually, physical cell towers that you lease to other uh, companies that need the space. And the other one, we went around the world and bought the 2.5G Spectrum and built wireless IP operations. Did that for several years. Throughout that time, 
met my wife, who's like way smarter and ambitious and of course good looking. And then after she got admitted to MIT, I found myself again in the U.S. for my second tour of duty in the U.S. and uh, started a different company called Sabi, which basically built branded goods for baby boomers. Basically, they thought that the world is maturing and moving for, in different population, but nobody actually have product that gears to them. Everything is gears to like a 27-year-old or a 34-year-old mother of two kids and stuff like that. Uh, did that for six years, sold it, and found myself in insurance. So you see, there's a linear line that leads from uh, telco to branded goods for boomers to uh, insurance. It's kind of like a natural progression. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, like everybody. Everybody goes through that natural progression, yes. <laughs> so then tell us about the founding story of Hippo. What was it you saw that you really felt like needed to be addressed? So I looked a lot at insurance once I finished McKinsey in 2007. And I did a lot of projects back then. And I thought, you know, it's as broken as I've ever seen. You have a bit of a privilege working in consulting because you kind of see, you know, under the kimono. You see what's going on, the real thing, you're dealing with it. And you were like, wow, that's so broken. You have to do something. But I looked at it in 2007 and basically the same premise, which I'll get to in a minute. But I thought... There's nothing you can do because of three things. One was data. How can you compete with a company that has 10 million households and been doing it for 100 years? How can I compete on the data? It's impossible. Second thing is if you wanted back then to build the backend for a company that has to do with insurance or you know, a lot of the other financial institutions, it was almost impossible. You had to go and get like a guide wire, assuming that they were even uh, alive back then bringing Accenture, bringing Oracle Database 9, define upfront how many customers. It's going to take you five years and $300 million of project because there is no middle kind of way. And that's not very functional for entrepreneur to do. And the last component was, I just didn't have a trust level that people would, would basically go for a new brand and insurance because it's all about trust. Then after I sold my company in 2015 and I wasn't ready to retire, I was basically looking at what opportunities I want to look at again. And insurance, I basically brought my old notebook and I looked at insurance and I get to what in insurance. And I thought, you know what? We're in a world of an abundancy of of data sources. We're like, I don't have 10 million households. I have 130 million households. I don't have data just on one. I have everybody. I don't have one roof. I have every roof. I have aerial imagery and satellite imagery and MLSs. And the amount of data that you have now is crazy. We're in a world of an abundance of data. The thing is, how do you prevent using data? How do you make sure that the data that you're using is not corrupt and is relevant and rightly priced and all of that kind of stuff? So that happened. And you're like, wow, we're actually in an advantage. Second thing is you can build everything almost to a scalable model using some components on AWS and using microservices. I don't need to build the the payment mechanism. I'm just going to go to Stripe and I don't need to build the chats. I'm going to go to Intercom. And there's so many optionalities to build stuff on scale, which is the right thing to do. You also negate a lot of the legacy aspect because if if you build upfront everything to a certain scale, then by definition, you're going to be a legacy by the time you're going to finish it. But by building it scalable, it's it, you, you negate a lot of the legacy aspects. And thirdly, I was looking at it and I said, listen, my student loans are from SoFi. My uh, money is, is with Wealthfront. My this is with, like, every component of my life has been 
mitigated or, or basically done with best of breed providers that are easy to onboard on different things. So why shouldn't like uh, insurance be one of them as well? So all of these things kind of like, wow, so I should really relook again at insurance. And then the trigger that basically pushed me to what I'm doing was I usually read a lot. I just, because I don't have enough certainty. So I, I meet a lot of people for a, from a certain field. And I'm basically asking them, Peter, if you would have started a company now in insurance, uh, what you would have started? One. Second thing is, if you were a CEO of a company now, what were the three pain points that you have? And, and, and have a lot of discussion and read and attend a lot of stuff. And constantly, what popped as a number that I found really mind-boggling was that the average age of an agent was 58. Wow. And there was less than half of the agents that used to be 10 years before. And I'm like, yeah, maybe it's 58 for forever. No, it's going in one clear direction. Right now, it's north of 61 now. And nobody actually wants to be an agent. There's just this issue and, and challenge. So I thought, okay, fine. Let's continue the discussion, which is if agents are retiring and there's not enough agents that are actually coming in the funnel, then what's the implication of it? And I thought, okay, let's analyze. What does new agents bring to the table? Usually what they do is they used to sell auto, home, maybe life insurance, all of the simple stuff. You would have got a call from uh, your mom and said, Peter, please do me a favor. This and this son is just becoming an agent with Allstate. Do you mind jumping on a call and see if you can give him your auto? And all? That, that's how people used to build their book. But if there's no more of them coming in and current insurance people basically crunch the underwriting capacity and things of that sort, then the realization that we have is that the simpler lines in insurance they'll have to go direct because there's no more people to actually service and there is a crunch on commission, et cetera. So I said, okay, fine. That's an interesting realization. Let's look at the four simple lines. There is auto, there is home, there is small, medium business, and there's life. Auto is basically direct. Geico and Progressive are the only one who capture market share for the last, I don't know, 15 years. Life was less appealing to us because it's a one-time kind of less customer interaction with just less of, of our our kind of DNA. And then we looked at home and SMB and we thought SMB, you need to answer a matrix. Like Peter is a personal trainer and Asaf is a chef and Andrea is a I know, painter and stuff like that. How do I present the right kind of opportunity, the right kind of pricing and products to the right person? Less of something that appeals to us. We are a lot more going deep on data kind of thing. And we thought, you know what? Home is interesting. And we started a company, basically, we're going to build a Geico of home insurance. We're going to build a progressive of home insurance. That's what we're going to build. It's a $100 billion market. It's 110 now, growing at $5 billion a year. And it's going to keep on growing for basically forever. There's going to be more homes in the US next year than this year. Labor and material always goes up faster than inflation. And the complexity of our home is getting more and more complex. Everybody has an ensuite now. Everybody has an open kitchen. After COVID, everybody's going to have a, an office training place. It's just that, you know, the footprint of our home keep on increasing and more complex. So I thought, you know, that's a really interesting kind of uh, market to launch in. And the competitive landscape was such that we didn't see a lot of competitors. Huh. So despite the fact that obviously there's insurance companies that are very well established in the home insurance business, what was it about the existing traditional players that you felt like there was no competition? It's a really interesting market. It's A, I have never seen such a channel conflict. For 100 years, they built one channel and that channel was an agent. And now it's a bit difficult for you to disrupt that and tell the agent, whoa, 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 we're actually going to go direct. 
we're not going to go to that. And by the way, we're not going to compensate you for that. And the agent's going to say, what the agent? That, that, that's not what the deal was. The deal was that you are actually going to advertise and send it to Joe Smith, who's in this zip code, not that you're going to go to farmers.com. It's just not the deal. And because of that, it's very difficult for them to disrupt. Plus, don't forget that most of the business is not new business. It's the recurring revenue that you have in your current book. So show me an insurance CEO who is willing to lose all of that and piss off all of the agents that they have. So there's a crazy channel conflict. Second thing, it's actually quite complex to do it. You need, you need your own kind of systems to actually control. You need to the full stack, the full technology stack. But insurance companies are not technology companies. They're not set up and wired with the same DNA that they have a CTO and a chief product and chief act. They're just different. It's not, most of the stuff is IT that is basically being developed from the outside and we are implementing. It's kind of like an enterprise company. It's not different than a retailer. Like Walmart is not developing all of the system in-house. They're buying off-the-shelf point of sales and fine-tune and implement. You need to build the entire stack internally as a technology company in order to accommodate all of the data sources, APIization of the world, digitization, change customer experience, A-B test. It's just a different thing. And lastly is because they have their current book, do you think they don't know that they're, they're you know, every component of them is stuck in the 60s that they're just selling with customers. Look at their product. If you'll have the time to open your policy, you'll see that you're covered for things like fur coats and pewter boards, China, silverware, mausoleums and crypts are covered because in 1905, people used to bury their dead on the lot. So you're covered for that. <laughs> and gold bullions and stamp collections and tape cassette. I can go through the list for forever. But your home office is not included. And, and the nice room that you're sitting in now and, and conducting this uh, discussion with me is actually not covered all of the electronics in it. You know, if you look at your electronics coverage, it's $2,000. My backpack has more electronics than that. There's just a bunch of stuff that will just not modernize. Do you think they don't know about it? Of course they do. But they're caring about their current book. They can't really implement fast. They can't wake the rates. They have a certain channel conflict. It's very difficult for them to compete. On top of all of that, Insurance is not a winner-take-all market. Home insurance, there's one carrier that has more than 10%, and that's State Farm. And then it goes down to slightly less than 10%. It's like all state. And you go down the list, and you know everybody, like Liberty Mutual and Safeco and AAA and farmers and travelers, and they have 2%, 3%. You can build a really, really massive company on basically tiny points of the market, which is awesome. So... The idea is I'm not coming to to kill Allstate and State Farm. I'm coming to be way better service, way better price for the customers that we want and care about better taking care of their home and have a different relationship with their insurance company, et cetera. Right, right. Interesting. So, you know, you started from scratch, what was it, six years ago or thereabouts. Could you tell us sort of like how you've ramped up and what scale you're at today? Firstly, it takes around 18 months to even have a product. This is something important for entrepreneurs to know. There is no MVP. There is no, you need to file. You need to get admitted. If you have one customer, you need to have a claim organization. You need to have a call center because Peter might need to call me five minutes later and say that he has an issue. Uh, so you need to kind of have everything in play. I think the only feature that we didn't develop initially was renewal because I said, okay, I have a year. Peter, now at least I have a year until I'm going to renew in. Uh, but every other thing you need to build, and it takes a while, and getting a, admitted and approved, and it just takes a while. So we started, it's a state-by-state, state, the 50 Department of Insurance in the U.S. 
We started with California and then we grew from there. Right now, I think we're live in 37 states. It might be 38 and I haven't looked this morning if we got admitted on something. We finished last year with $405 million in, in premiums. And uh, this is just the beginning. Rick McCaffrey was my partner and, and our president always say, we're not even picking up the lowing in fruits. We're still picking up fruits from the floor. And by the way, when we're walking around, we're still hitting watermelons. It's, it's like there's so much opportunity that we haven't even started. Right, right. No, I, I totally get it. I'm curious about the fact that you recently announced that you're going to go public via SPAC. And obviously, that's a big stepping stone for any company. But I'd love to sort of get your perspective on how you think that's going to change um, Hippo becoming a public company. Several, several things. You know, there's pros and cons to everything. So it's going to institutionalize Hippo as a company. So all of a sudden, you're managing it more by quarterly processes are tighter, what you can discuss and things of that. So on the flip side, you can't make crazy, crazy bets all the time as we used to have before. So you need to be more thoughtful on what you're doing. On the flip side of it, insurance is a game of trust. When you're purchasing for someone, you want to know that the, a lot of people, when they don't convert to Hippo, is they love everything about the product. They love everything about the experience. And someone sits in the last five milliseconds and is like, but who are these guys? Right. Are they going to be there if, God forbid, something happens? By being a, a public company, you solidify trust. You're building the foundation for a lasting franchise. It's a lot more resilient. It's there. Uh, you know, you have access to the public market. People understand the scrutiny that you had to go through in order to be a public company, the processes. So we believe that in order to build the franchise that we want to get into, and we're certain that we can get into, being a, a public company is very, very strong and it's a strong signal. It's a strong signal when someone called my call center and Peter is going to say, yeah, but I've never heard of you guys. And you're saying, we're actually listed on the New York Stock Exchange. This is our ticker. We've done it. We have X million dollars in the bank. We're just starting. We've been doing business in Colorado for several years now. There is gravitas in that, which is important. It's important because a lot of our distribution is via partners. And they want to know that they're not investing a lot of time into a company that might dissolve or not going to be there and can actually keep on supporting the partnership. So there's a lot of benefits on these components, which for insurance company, we thought it's important. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've read that one of the things you've really focused on is, is moving away from like a transactional type relationship with the customer, which is, I think, what most insurance companies have had for decades. Um, you know, I'd love to sort of get about like, how are you doing that? And what, what are the benefits for your business as well as for the consumer? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is something that basically um, occupies most of my time. Mm -hmm. Think about today's experience. You usually have a crappy onboarding experience. So purchasing a policy now is not easy. It's going to take you two to three days to get all of an agent. If it's a good time, not a good time. If you go online, you're going to answer 70 questions. How far you are from a fire hydrant? What's your inner world material? It's the shape of the... Nobody knows how to answer that. And then it's not even going to capture it because when you're going to get hold of an agent, it's going to ask you all of these questions again. It's a bit of an obsolete and not very friendly kind of experience. Coverage, as we said, is, is stuck in the 60s on the fur coats and pewter balls, et cetera. When you have a claim, it's usually a horrible claim experience. The average net promoter score for the industry is minus 49. Wow, that was that long. Uh, you know, try and find a lot of people that love their insurance. It's even worse because since the moment that you purchase the policy, you kind of know that in nine years when you're going to have a claim, 
the first sentence out of your mouth is going to be, I knew guys going to be like that. I'm not going to add all kinds of other words in it, but right. I knew that's going to be, you know, I knew that this is what's going to happen. I've been paying you guys for nine years every month, and I knew that just when I'm going to need it, you guys are going to come up with something. That's what you're carrying with you is your expectation of, of the experience. And in between this horrible purchase and this bad claim experience, crickets, zero touch point. There's no touch point. Like, you know, KPIs for a lot of the insurance companies is how little of touch point they have with the customers. Hence why when I'm asking people, who are you insured with? Usually it's like Allstate, State Farm, Farmers, that's it. People don't know who they're insured with. And the second question is, okay, fine. And what's the difference between these three companies? And the answer is not because this one have quarterback one and this one have quarterback two. What's the difference in the product? So there's no differentiation of the product. There's no touch point with the customers. And we thought that's a crappy customer experience. I don't want to have customers that that's because I was able to, to acquire them in a certain way. I want to have lasting customers with a differentiated offering and something that, that is different. And we thought that for us, it's how do we build meaningful touch point with our customers? That's how you build a brand. But where are your insurance company? You don't want to hear from me on an ongoing basis. The best alignment of interest of an insurance company with their insured was avoiding a claim from happening in the first place as opposed to paying fast. The best option for getting paid fast is that Peter had a water leak in this from his roof. And Asaf knocks on your door and said, Peter, here's $17,000. Five minutes later. And you were like, wow, that was magic. I had a loss and they paid me immediately. But for three weeks, you're probably not going to reside at the home. You need to find a contractor. There's going to be a mess. You lost your family heirloom that is in the attic, the favorite sofa, some favorite clothes. And this was like magic. You had a damage. I came and paid you for the damage. Wouldn't it be way better if I can actually see that there's a discoloration on the roof? beforehand, I'm going to send a roofer to fix it. That's way better. You're going to continue with your life on an ongoing basis. And it's going to be good for us because there's going to be less losses. We're also going to build a relationship. So for us, that touch point is what we call being a proactive insurance company. We're doing it in three ways. We constantly keep on monitoring the data on the homes that we're insuring. So every time we have another aerial imagery pool, I'm checking all of my customers. So I'm checking Peter's home in Denver. And if I see there's the discoloration, someone's going to call you. Or if I see that you added a swimming pool, someone's going to say, Peter, as you know, we're monitoring your home from time to time. Our records show that you added a swimming pool. I just wanted to confirm it. And 99.9%, you're going to say, oh, yeah, why is it relevant? And we're going to say, I think we should increase your liability insurance because the next door neighbor kid might jump in the pool when you guys are away. And it's important that we're going to cover them. And it's going to cost you $2.20 more a month. And by the way, sometimes it works the other way around. I noticed that you, your roof was replaced. I just wanted to confirm it because both our permit records and our area limitry flagged it. And, and we see now you're entitled to whatever, a 4% discount because it's a new roof. The idea is that we're constantly monitoring your home, that you're going to be insured for what you should be insured. And we can hope, hopefully prevent losses from escalating or happening in the first place. One. Second thing is we're giving every one of our customers a smart home kit. So every one of our customers is getting a self-installed, self-monitored kit of motion sensors, leak detectors, smoke and fire alarm. The idea is, can we help you better take care of your home on that stuff? You know, so, so I put it on the back door and how many times I had when I left the home and then I wasn't like, did I lock the back door? I didn't lock the back door. And I'm just looking at the app and I'm awesome. I locked the back door. Oh, there's a small leak uh, in the faucet underneath my kid's sink and the bathroom. And it's just, yeah, I just need to come in and look at it and fix it as opposed to wait in the morning when those, the entire first floor is flooded. 
So the idea is if we can help customers better take care of the home, that's positive. Thirdly, we have a service called Hippo Home Care, which is every one of our customers can call the call center and ask for help from installing a shelf or I have a leaky faucet and I don't know what to order from Home Depot or I actually thinking of doing a renovation in the bathroom. Can you help me vet some contractors? Anything that helps our customers better care for the home. Better cared homes means less losses for us and better relationship with our customers. And that's kind of how we look at it. Right. I want to just expand on that because I think there was a really interesting use case that, or a demonstration, shall we say, of the of this you know, proactive sort of stance you have. You know, we all heard about the Texas uh, cold snap they had and pipes froze and it was just an absolute disaster in February of this year. And tell us what you guys did there that, um, I don't know if it was while it was going on or before it happened. What what exactly you guys did to your Texas customers who were experiencing this massive cold freeze? It's a combination of all of the above on timing. So first, there was a point where you realized there's going to be a frost in Texas. So we sent emails and texts to whoever we can, you know, in our customers and say, guys, this is what's going to happen. Probably what's going to happen is going to be uh, freezing pipes. We never assumed that there's going to be freezing pipes and also there's going to be water uh, supply issues and 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 electricity, that was just, you know, that, that was significantly more severe than what we accept, expected. But we said, this is what's going to happen. People that have swimming pool, swimming pool are going to be uh, frozen if your equipment is going to be frozen. And then uh, there's going to be issues. So we kind of like thought, we sit down, we brainstorm, what are the issues that's going to happen? And then we started sending an email. This is what you should actually do. Then when it did happen, we realized it's going to be bursting pipes. And we said, guys, this is what you should close the water shut valve. You should make sure that you know you do not open the water until the, the water are defrosting and stuff like that. Now, is it good for hippo? Yes, it reduces the amount of losses that we have because of bursting pipes. But is it good for the customers? Yes, because Peter doesn't want to deal with for a month and a half with bursting pipes as well. So it's not that I did you a favor. It's, it's a mutual thing of, of the same alignment. And then we realized there were some people that also didn't have electricity, uh, I had a problem to to cook food because of gas and stuff like that. I probably bought 5,000 lasagnas and handed it over to, to our customers in that area. We had to put some people, a lot more people in temporary housing. We had people that had, you know, that we got calls that I have a three-year-old daughter at home and, and my house is freezing. Don't forget, it's even worse because it's COVID time. So it's not like just go to your neighbor or someone's going to host you. This was a different time of COVID and people want to be separated and didn't want to have communal kind of aspect. We, we started putting temporary housing to people and trying to take care of them. So the thought is, first, let's take care of our customers. That's the mindset. What issue is going to happen? Let's take care of them. If we're going to take care of them over time, yes, it's going to be beneficial for us because these are the customers that we want. You build a brand and acknowledgement of a company over a span of like, 20, 30 years, not over one off if I have X customers or Y customers. Right. But I'm, I'm curious about like that, that, that was obviously a, a dramatic weather event where, I mean, we're recording this in mid-July where there's now fires raging uh, around the country. There's traumatic heat events happening. Like I'm curious about like with climate change is obviously going to have a major impact on the home insurance business. I mean, what are you doing to address that or how are you, how are you viewing sort of the changes that the environment's going through? It's tough. There's no uh, easy solution. And I'm still looking for, uh, you know, the IoT device that stop a hail or, or a complete fire. It's just not an easy thing. Uh, I think it's about constantly reevaluating the data, understanding what's your belief on 
where losses are going to come from, where catastrophic events are going to come. Have a point of view and, and, and just support the customers that you have. And, and you know, there's some areas that we're probably not going to write business in because we have a high conviction that these are not areas that, that would make sense for us and some areas that we're doubling down on. It's not an easy thing. My expectation is that over time, pricing is going to change because uh, insurance companies are not going to be the one to bear all of the cost of climate change, et cetera. One other thing that I find really, really interesting is I actually think that more than climate change, it's the fact that the bigger issue is that people are moving into places that they shouldn't have lived in before. Right. So people are moving to uh, coastal areas that shouldn't be lived in or swampland or high kind of like fire areas that are in the mountains that nobody was ever like, there used to be fires there for forever, but nobody lived there. Now that people live there, hey, you increase the chance of a fire because someone's going to drop a, a match or something like that. And people were not supposed to live there. So the risk is very, very high and you need to kind of safeguard that. And there's a bit of a problem on that front, which I think with the growth of population, people are starting to move into areas that are not necessarily habitual. And insurance companies, there's a question whether you should be the backstop for that stuff or not. Right. We're almost out of time, but a couple more questions I'd like to get to before before we finish. Um, I want to talk about underwriting. And you've, you mentioned data and how there's so much data available uh, to you now that wasn't available you know, 20 years ago. What is your approach to underwriting? How are you kind of using technology and the, the vast amounts of data to you know, provide a, an accurate price for your, for your customers? It moves into two things. Firstly, what questions we need to ask? Because in different times, we, we need to ask different questions. And then what's the best source to fill in the data for that question? So let me give you a very simplistic example. I can ask you, Peter, what's the square footage of your home? And there is, let's say, a 50-50 chance that you might know exactly what the square footage you might not know. Now, I can also probably get the data from your tax record, but then you probably have an incentive to, to not report if you made all kinds of changes in the home because you don't want to pay more taxes on that. Sometimes aerial imagery would show some of it. Sometimes uh, permits would, would show what was your footprint of the home Yes or no, but maybe you you increased you built you turned the garage into a living room without getting a permit for it. So I don't know. And then there is an MLS. If there's been a transaction in the last three to five years, usually there's a tendency that the square footage is increased, not decrease. So now you what what I wanted to show you there is one path which is Peter, what's your square footage, and you plug it in. And then there is the other path which is like let's look at all of the data sources that we have and have a certain prioritization of source of truth. If it's an, a transaction in your home, there was two parties, it's probably the most correct. And then it goes down to permit records and tax record. And over time, I get a source of truth of what do I get in order to infuse the right data. What I get is two things. One, I get a more accurate uh, number than just asking Peter. And the second thing, I actually remove the burden of responsibility from Peter. Because now, I don't know, 2100, 2200, I'm not sure. And what, what if I'm going to have a loss? And then they're going to say, but you wrote the wrong number and that's why we give you a quote and it's going to happen in nine years and I'm not going to get paid or is it enough? All of that goes in your mind. If we can reduce the stress from the customers and doing a better point, that's how we look at everything in underwriting. So first to ask the right question, fill in the right data and constantly monitoring again and closing the loop. If there's better data sources that we can pre-fill and if the questions that we're asking are the right questions for the risk that we're trying to avoid. 
it's an iterative process that's going on all the time. But that's how we look at it. The better data that we have, the better answers we're going to get, the right question we ask, the better kind of outcome we're going to have, and reducing the burden of responsibility from our customers. So last question then, I mean, you've really gone all in on the home insurance industry, and obviously the, the traditional players are, are in multiple verticals. Love to get your sense on the, the vision for Hippo. Is, are you really completely focused on home insurance and you're going to stay there, or what's, what's the vision for Hippo? You know, our official vision is, we call it protecting the joy of homeownership. And we want to move vertically in this home and basically be the caregiver of your home. Think about what's going on today. There are two movies that are going on in parallel. There is, my wife and I went to look for a place. It's the rom-com. It's, uh, we looked at places, it was a horror story, we couldn't find anything, and then we found something. And the, the way that people usually uh, explain it it's like a love. It's like, it's like a love event. It's a love story. It's like, and I knew immediately that this is our place. And I felt right. And I fell in love with the place. And it was, you know, it's a very loving kind of thing. So you start with the romance. But three to six months later, when you bought your house, you're, you're having like a, a moment of anxiety attack. And it can be from a drama to a horror story. It's like, the back door doesn't lock, or I keep having, uh, you know, leakage from this window, and there's random noises from the window over there, and uh, I have, a, the electricity is not working, and the plumbing is not working well, and you're like, this is not what we thought, and you basically become a part-time employee of your home to take care of it, and you're never content. So the idea is, how do we bring you back to this romance? And our, the, the thought is that Hippo wants to help you basically be the 1-800 number to everything that you need in their home. You locked out of your home, you need a locksmith, call us. You, your fridges have a problem with the fridge, call us, we're going to take care of it. You need some help with renovation, call us. Or God forbid there is a catastrophic event or any losses in the home. We're going to help you take care of your home. Now, I think that nobody's actually owning that category and we're making awesome strides. That's what I told you about the proactive and having a proper relationship with our customers to help them take care of their homes. And on the other verticals of auto and, you know, pet and life and stuff like that, we don't have enough conviction that we can use data and customer experience to build a differentiated product that are better than some of the other, you know, better than travelers, better than farmers, better than progressive, et cetera, on the auto. There's also very, very limited synergies. One of them is a high frequency, low severity event. The other one is low frequency and high severity a call center or a claim organization that know how to serve auto doesn't necessarily know how to serve home. So what we do is we partner with the best firms in the street and we offer you, when, when Peter wants to add auto insurance, we're happy to sell you Progressive and Safeco and, and, and whatever. It's like, we're going to try and give you the best product out there. It's just not necessarily going to be Hippo. Now, there is a tendency to think that bundling is really, really important. But what you see is that people are, are having two mediocre products and connecting them together. We have a saying that if you tie two rocks together, they don't float. It's better to have a better product there and a better product there and connect them and give something which is the best product for the customer. And that's our view, protecting the joy of homeownership and offering best of breed products that are not necessarily manufactured by, by us to our customers. Right. Well, that, that is a great view. And I think it's very refreshing to, uh, to really talk to you, Asaf. And uh, it just really, it's really such a different type of approach, what you've done here. So congratulations on, on your progress so far. And I know you're just getting started, but uh, anyway, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Okay. See ya. Well, 
I hope you found that as engaging and uh, informative as I did and, and, and entertaining. It was just such a fascinating discussion. I think it points to you know, the way that, that fintech and technology companies are approaching these traditional industries and really just turning them on their head. And I think there's a lot of lessons here to be had for any um, fintech company or technology company, and that is really looking at the customer experience and trying to sort of do it in a way that is exactly what the customer would want. There's many fintechs that are doing this. I think we can even do better. And I think what uh, what Hippo is doing, it really just demonstrates uh, what's possible. I think, you know, we are in a world with tremendous amounts of data. I don't know if everyone's using the data that's available to them in the best ways possible to really dramatically improve the customer experience. And that's that to me is what Hippo has done. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening. And I'll catch you next time. Bye. Before we go, I want to remind you about the brand new event from Lended Fintech. Fintech Nexus, the Dealmakers Summit, will be the first major in-person fintech event of the past 18 months. A hand-curated audience of venture capitalists, bankers, fintechs, and debt investors will be meeting face-to-face at an event 100% focused on doing deals. It will be happening in Miami on September 1st and 2nd. You can apply to join and find out more at Lendit.com.